0: about alcoholism which follows chapter one by the way most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows therefore it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we can drink like other people the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker The persistence of this illusion is astonishing, many pursuing the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. That is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people maybe or presently has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who lost the ability to control our drinking. No real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were gaining control. But such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We're convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other people. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there's been brief recovery followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Mm. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they're in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, uh, We will try to prove ourselves uh, therefore non-alcoholic. That means no near beer with .005 alcohol. (laughs) That don't count. Oh darn. If anyone who is showing the ability to control our drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman. Yeah, right. Our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only. Limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, Hmm. drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if you were drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing on forever with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitments to asylums, we can increase the list at infinite.
1: Thank you. All right.
2: Thank you.
3: recovery depends on AA a- a- unity. Number two, for a group purpose, uh, the one ultimate authority. A loving God is he may express himself and be conscious. Our leaders are trusted servants; that do not govern? Number three, the only requirement for AA membership is, is the desire of thought drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous, accepting matters affecting AA or the groups as a whole. Number five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry the message to other to, to, to alcoholics who still suffer. Number six, an AA group are never endorse, finance, or in the AA name to any related facility outside enterprise, less problems of money, corporate and prestige, never from our primary purpose. Number seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting. Finance our contributions. Number eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non professional, but our service boards, our service centers, excuse me, may create, may, may employ special workers. I'm sorry about that. Uh, number eight, number nine, AA as such, i never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Number ten, a cult has n- no opinion on outside issues and CAA name ought never be done to in controversy. Number 11. A corporate relations policy is based on exception rather than promotion. We need always maintain anonymity, please, personal anonymity for so the local press, radio, and film. Number 12. <coughs> anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to face principles and poor personalities.
1: Thank you again. Okay, my
2: out there pretty quickly. So my name is Craig and I am an alcoholic or I'm still an alcoholic. Hi Craig. Um, and it's one of those things you never turn down an AA um, ask. And I was asked if I was here with Catherine was going to be the main speaker. And then when I found out I was asked if I was willing to lead and be the 10 minute speaker. I said absolutely. So the good news is I didn't have any chance to think about what I was gonna say, so that means I'm not nervous. Um, but you know, it's just interesting as I'm standing here. Oh, first of all, Caroline, congratulations on 29 days. You're the yeah, most important right. person in this meeting, right? Me, yeah. So thank you yeah. for having the courage to show up. Um, but a couple of things running through my mind, right? It's a Friday night and I'm with a bunch of alcoholics. Nothing has changed. The only thing is that I'm sober as compared to the way I used to be, right? But but I just was kind of thinking about about the past and what it was like. And I think the best way to summarize, uh, in 1981, I think I was 23 23 years old, and I had this job in a supermarket, and they were going to have a brand new grand opening of this store. So two nights before, they gave me the keys and asked if I would show up at six o'clock in the morning to let everybody in on a Sunday. And I'm from Massachusetts, a union town. So there's guys, you know, double time, triple time and everything. I went out the night before and at 10 o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on my door, letting me know that I was supposed to be someplace at six o'clock. So a couple words go through my mind. I jump in my car. I drive and I get there and, you know, I'm, I'm ready to get fired basically. And I get called into the manager's office And again, this is back in the early 80s, and she's a woman. This is a tough, tough profession to be, you know, a boss in that. She calls me in, she goes, you're drunk. I go, nope, I'm not drunk. She goes, I'm going to fire you. I go, and all of a sudden, out of the club, I go, you cannot fire me. I'm an alcoholic. I have a disease, and I'm protected, right? Where the hell that came from is beyond me. And then 23 years later, I finally came into the program. But, you know, it just kind of goes that, you know, that was where my thinking was. And, and, and for me, I distinguished it. You know, I might have been an alcoholic, but I wasn't a drunk. Right? That was the difference. I could, I could function, I could have a job, and I could you know, kind of get my way through society. And for the longest time, my theory was everybody drank the way I drank. I mean, it seemed to be everyone I was around did that. But i soon realized that maybe there's an attraction of 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 people with similar interests so i was just kind of bouncing around and you know i was always i started drinking because i was like so many people and i didn't fit in something wasn't right but yet alcohol at first drink just lifted all my um all those insecurities that i had and it became the life of the party you know, I could talk to anybody and I could just kind of flirt and fool around and just had a kind of grand old time. And the other thing, too, about <clears throat> living in Massachusetts at the time, drinking and driving, which was something that was very tolerated. You never, you very really got a ticket unless you got into an accident. So that was kind of nice from that perspective. And I just kind of bounced along and I was always drinking and always partying and always having a good time. But you know what? I always controlled it. At least in my mind, I controlled it. And I, and I continued on and I finished up school, uh, college, and I got a job in a, in a place where I was the last person hired and I didn't really belong in this organization, but they hired me anyways. But I found out if you drink, you could get, you could get ahead. So I continued to drink and continued to drink and I, 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 but I basically said, now it's part of my job. I have to do this, right? And again, I was still controlling it. And I was just listening to, you know, some of the measures we go through. I used to stop drinking. Um, from basically the first weekend in in January to April 15th every year. Um, April 15th because I did taxes and that was a good day to stop, start again. But you know, it was like, I could control it. I could control it. And I was just having fun. I was always having fun. But then I started realizing that it was getting a little hard to get up during the day, you know, and my drinking during the day might start a little earlier than it did before, but I still controlled it. And I was working with two other guys who were older than I was. And we would go out every well, Monday through Friday, we'd go out for drinks. And one of them said, you know, I think we're drinking too much, okay? And we probably are. And it said, you know what? Why don't we limit ourselves to 15 drinks a week? Okay, Monday through Friday. So that means three a night. So Monday night we're sitting there and the three go down and they go, well maybe we can borrow a couple from Tuesday (laughs) alcoholic thinking right and you can imagine the 15 drinks you know didn't work but anyways it was all it was all fun and games but then one day it wasn't fun and games anymore I needed that alcohol I thought I controlled it but it controlled me Um, I suddenly found myself married with a couple children responsibilities and I was always drinking but yet again I thought I was functioning and Slowly but surely, my world got smaller and smaller and smaller. And again, I didn't really notice it because everybody I was around was drinking. And um, my parents passed away, and my wife, who was a normie, suggested that maybe she tricked me to get into this program, by the way. She she suggested I go see a grievance counselor because I was grieving a little bit too much about my parents. I wasn't grieving enough, I should say. I told her in no uncertain terms. Two words, that I grieve the way I grieve. So I went to see this person, and it turned out he was one of us, right? He was a counselor. And I didn't know it at the time, and he asked me how much I drank, and I told him, he goes, don't you think that's a little excessive? No, I go, you know, for you guys in the ivory tower, I don't know what you do, but for us, this is the way we drink out there. But yet, I was willing to go to this, you know, to, to go to this, for some reason, I just, you know, I just, something happened. I don't know what had happened. I was just tired, and sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I went and saw this guy, and he kind of helped me with the twelve steps, and he suggested that I go to a meeting. But the first thing he suggested was I go out and get a big book. And I go, what's a big book? He goes, everyone knows what a big book is. Okay, so I go out to Barnes and Noble, and I walk and I go, hey, you got any big books? And I go, what? I go, yeah, everyone knows the big book, you know, the big, we have plenty of big books. Turns out they didn't have what they wanted, and I was, you know, I wasn't quite on board with what was going on. And then I showed up to a meeting, and I couldn't believe it. There were people, like, laughing, and, and they weren't drinking. And I'm like, how could that possibly happen? And, I, I, you know, I didn't really feel like I fit in, but, you know, it was one of those. I just, I kept coming back. I kept coming back because I, it felt better to not drink than it did to drink. And I, I'm, I'm an Irish Catholic guy from Boston, so we think we have more guilt than anybody. And I thought everything I did, I had all kinds of shame. But what I loved was, you know, first of all, to sit in the meeting and listen to the stories and realize that, wow, you know, maybe I wasn't quite the scumbag that I thought I was. You know, maybe this is, you know, what, what a lot of people have issues. And then you found out that you could talk to anybody and you weren't judged because we're all alcoholics. We know what we're going through. And, you, you know, and whatever I was going through, somebody else had been through. There's no original thought. And it was kind of nice because it didn't take me long for the squirrels, the monkeys, or whatever the hell's up there to get me off course. But I could call somebody, I could talk to someone and I could just kind of get back on course. And what I found out was I, I wasn't missing alcohol because I was feeling so good when I get up in the morning. And the other thing is, I could remember what I told people the night before. I, you know, when I was drinking, I I lied, I had no idea what I was telling people, but it was just nice to have this clear mind and be able to talk to people. And the other thing for me was, I was continuing down this road, and I'm sure I would have drunk myself to death, who knows what would have happened. But as a result, I I got to know my family better. I got to know my children better. And if it wasn't for this program, I don't think that would have happened. And now they're, they're in their twenties and they come home for the holidays because they want to be home. They come home to, they come home to talk to dad. I still have to tell them my story, right? About what happened to me and be real honest. And that, that, was a, that was a hurdle for me to sit down and tell my children what had happened to me. But yet, you know, to have that love and to have people around you like that, it's something special. And to me, the biggest one of the biggest benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous was during COVID. We had a place to go. We had people to talk to, people that understood. And there was a whole world out there that didn't have anybody. So I think Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, really helped me through, through the whole COVID period. And you know, it was one of those, I, you know, I kept going, kept, you know, I kept coming, kept suiting up, showing up, and you know, did the steps, did the next indicated steps, listened to what I was told to do. Um, <coughs> my, uh, my, by, my, by the way, my sobriety gate is, January 10th, uh, two, 2004, and it wasn't until about 10 years I got into this program that I really started to understand it a little bit better. What I found out the longer I've been in it, the less I understand it. But what I what I know is you just show up and you just listen, right? You just listen. You get the uh, you get the cotton out of the ears and you put it in your mouth <laughs> and you know what's going on. And and there's always again there's always someone to talk to, someone you can lean into. And what I find, you know, my life, is, my life is goes well, but it's not perfect. But when things get rough, all you have to do is be of service. Show up, help another alcoholic. Actually, help somebody not even in the program, right? You know, just be, a, be the best human being I can be. And I, I'm always reminded of a, of, a, of a speech that Bill Wilson gave to, in Culver City in the 50s. And he said, you know, we always make a big deal about trying to you know, work the 12 steps. And he said, if we get up in the morning and we go through the day with the intent of not hurting anybody and helping somebody. And at the end of the day, we didn't hurt anybody and we didn't help anybody. If we sat down, we realized, you know what? We lived the principles of the program that day. And to me, that's the simplest thing. I go out and try to be the best person I can be. I go out to try to help somebody. And I try my best not to be too self-centered and selfish. So... My name is Craig. Thanks for letting me share. And with that, I'll introduce to Catherine, right. our new speaker. Oh, yeah. Yay. Oh, Yay. Oh, right. Oh, right. oh, thank
4: you. Way to go. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to come right now. Hi. Uh, I, I, Don't miss anything that's juicy. Um, <laughs> thank you, Craig. <laughs> um, that was good, Craig. Thank you. Thank you, Les, for asking. Uh, my name's Catherine, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, hey, Catherine. I'm so cold, but um, I'll just dance around a little bit. Um, thank you, Les, for asking me to speak. Thank you, Lisa, for these duds. Thank you, Craig, for being my road dog. And um, I was going to time myself, because uh, I talked so much. Just a second, you don't, you'll be here, you'll be frozen to death. Ah, ah, you'll be frozen to death <laughs> just a minute. Um, I'm going to get myself together, here I go. Okay. My sobriety date is February the 18th, 1985. I, All right. I know, right? I look so good, but I'm—I'm um, gonna—I'll be, be 38 years sober next in three and a half weeks if I make it. And I think I'll make it All because right. I really love this, and I'm just chronologically got sober when I was two. So you know, it's not really—that's a lie. The thing is, I can't believe I'm sober because I—I um, I just couldn't understand why anybody would do this. It was so stupid, I thought because. Like I just drank, you know. I just drank. I was wonderful. I thought I was a mess. I was so hum. I was so easily humiliated. Anyway, I'll, I'm going to go all over the place because I'm, if you have iPhones, you know, you can track, and everybody's unfocused anyway. So, deal, you know, so deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm going to put this here. <clears throat> Forty forty-four more minutes. <laughs> um, but anyway. Okay. So i'm a terrible alcoholic i couldn't stop drinking i'm a terrible slut and i'm a terrible drug addict those are outside issues but i'll talk about those a little bit since you can't really see me right now um, it's just dark.
5: <laughs>
4: um <laughs> oh god okay i grew up on this i grew up in the most beautiful beautiful place on earth i really have been i've traveled a bit and i i really think that Wadmalaw island south carolina um, which is not even on a map, it's in the Low Country. is the most exquisite place I've ever seen. It, is, it will bring tears to your eyes. It's just pure poetry. And I talk about God, because I don't know about what God is. I just know that this experience that I have in my life is so magnificent, I call it God. And this is what I like to say, you know, you don't like this, I think. I don't believe in God. <laughs> because I can't limit the experience to a concept or a belief, it's too good, it's too big, it's too great. I just deal, I just can't tell you how big my experience of what I call God is. And I learned it up a tree in Wadmaw Island, South Carolina of this beautiful oak tree with the, its boughs dipping down into the water with Spanish moss hanging down, uh-oh, Spanish moss hanging down and in, in the, the tree is 200 years old and I had an experience over and over and over again as a little girl of God. I saw lights and sparkles and I heard celestial choirs and I was six, seven, eight years old. And even though the juxtaposition of that with 20 feet away in this old plantation house with a very violent father and a bitch of a Scottish mother who used to talk with <laughs> cigarette and she was just so difficult. But it didn't matter because here, was this power, this magnificence, this beauty, and it was mine. And I could go there and I was always safe. I was always so... It's an experience of being in the right place at the right time. And the only other place I've ever had it is in an AA meeting. And in India with my meditation teacher, which I might talk about a little bit, but maybe not. But I've just... The the sense of rightness, of being right, of being in the right place and safe, is so powerful. And I don't know if people really appreciate <coughs> appreciate that sometimes with this power, because I feel odd. I'm, I'm not really, I don't really fit anywhere. I'm an identical twin. It sucks so much to be an identical twin. It's a karmic horror. Now, m- most people that when I talk and I, I don't tell the story a lot anymore, but I'll tell you, I was a double mint twin in the 70s. We were the original, double your pleasure, double your fun with double the double the double mint gum. And i are supposed to do that smile. So <laughs> Now, nobody can get mad at me for not telling you that story. There apparently are um, original doublement twins every two years. So we were the ones in New York from 76 to 78. Yeah, I am old. So um, we did that. And if I had the money I made from those national residuals, I, I put it all up my nose. But if I had that money today, oh, God, I'd be so rich. So I did it. <laughs> Oh my God. But I did a lot of those commercials. I did a lot of television. I did a lot of that stuff. And people really like the twin stuff. It, it's just sort of a weird thing to be at. I mean, we're identical, which is just so horrible to think that an egg splits in two. Oh God, it's so gross, but I, anyway, my sister and I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know, and I don't have another experience of not being a twin, so I don't know what it's like really. But I do know that my sister is gone to this disease i mean she's alive but um she has a fentanyl pump in her stomach and she got that because she told her doctor she was going to commit suicide if she didn't get it and she drinks a lot of wine and she takes a lot of pills and she's just so wet-brained she's so it's just tragic this was a beautiful valuable human being who looks 20 years older than me and she's just she's just a mess and she just she lives on and thrives on just attacking me and going after my credentials i'm a psychotherapist now and she's reported me five times to the board of psychology and tried to go out and she's just it's it's horrible and you know no it's not it's a terrible thing that she's done but i just don't talk to her anymore so 18 years have gone by and i don't talk to her because she just breaks out this disease is so horrible it's it's you know, it's pernicious, it's it's fatal. It's it's just a terror. it's a horrible disease and nobody sometimes I just can't believe how much it destroys people. It destroyed my first marriage. I mean it destroyed it. Things were so good and then I was talking to Craig in the car coming here and um I just adored my husband and we we got sober together in New York. I mean he was a big advertising guy and I was a big dot da, 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 da actress <laughs> and um so and and we got sober and it was hard it was really hard i got sober first and then he got sober and things changed but we were wonderfully happy and and we had a child and we had we were planning another child and then he drank after 10 years and everything turned upside down fast everything was lost i mean fast he everything that the big book talks about that it took down families like a tornado it just took it took everything down we lost everything and it it's it's impossible to conceive of because I look at some of the pictures of how happy we were hiking up at Lake Tahoe and and he's there and and our child's in the front smiling like home alone and and you know there's a golden retriever it's a perfect tableau and then about a month later it was destroyed it was gone and he spent all of our money giving it all away to a charlatan I mean we had a lot of money He'd given it away to somebody because he didn't have a brain left in his head he lost his job he went to jail he he went to prostitutes gone 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 and we were both really big people and it just it destroyed our lives it destroyed this child she lost her father i lost my husband he lost himself and he's dead now and uh oh my god that's the disease and if you think it can't happen to you think again because it can and hopefully it'll be you that that happens to and not some in your family because it's exquisitely painful if you're, somebody's taken from you this way and they can be taken without little physical deaths it's the worst disease this disease it's progressive and it's fatal and you know jails institutions well, there's nothing but that and it happened to me and i am a la-di-da person i mean i am the daughter of a governor i am Hot, you know what and, and you better know it i mean you'll have to know it so <laughs> but yeah you know, it, it's it's just i remember my father once said my father was um he my father was a real violent rageaholic and he used to just i used to i was very skinny and and i just wanted to make him love me and please me and i used to shoot guns and try to and I was so skinny and little and I used to hurt myself and I'd ride horses and he'd take a whip to the horse and to me just, I, I couldn't get over a jump. When I was 12, my father had a religious conversion. He, he had a spiritual awakening. And I've never heard of anyone having this, except our big book ta- talks about it. it talks about the re- varieties of religious experience, William James he had one of these without, uh, you know, and he still he drank, he continued to drink, but he never became he never was an alcoholic again. Now this can happen because I saw it with my own eyes. And he became the most wonderful man cherished and he just adored me and he never used bad language. He never was violent. He became an incredible human being because he had a complete spiritual awakening. It can happen. It can happen. It happened like that. It was a magnificent experience. And he became somebody he hadn't been. Thank God for him, because he became somebody that was really my mentor, my coach, my guide, my friend, all through life, all through the rest of my life from the time I was 12, thank God, because he had been a real mean curmudgeon man. He'd been horrible. But anyway, that happened. And as I moved through my life, as a child, I I was very, Well, I just wanted to be in the tree. I just wanted the experience of God over and over and over again. I would go out in my little boat. I had a five and a half horsepower boat. I would, I just, I'd turn it on, what do you call it, pull it, pull that thingy and go out into the England waterway and I'd lie on my back and I'd look up at the clouds. Now I had my mother's pack of Newports. I was about 10 and I'd go boom, boom and blow those smoke rings, you know? Now, back then Parents weren't quite as worried about kids all the time like they are today. So I'd go home at the end of the day and I say, "Mom, didn't you worry about me?" She'd go, "Oh, darling, I saw the smoke rings. I knew you were fine." (laughs) uh, You know, I mean, I was gone 12 hours. You know, I'd be gone. And I say to my dad, "Were you worried?" He said, "Well, I saw the armadillo bones in my hunting jacket." So, no, I wasn't worried. (laughs) Boy, that is a different world today. Parents are on their kids. You know, but, is this the one I brought? Yeah. Just a minute, I got a swig, still swigging, but it's water. And I don't have to plan where I'm gonna get my next bottle. Mm. I don't have to think about it and just call ahead and see if it's gonna be there. Oh, what a relief. (laughs) And be coy about it, you know, like, what what kind do you have? (laughs) What kind of bottled water are you gonna serve? I, I can only have a certain kind of, I'm allergic, you know, <clears throat> God almighty, what a town. Anyway, I grew up in the south and my, my father, the grandfather, this truth, you can you can check it out if you don't believe me because I tend to, my, my husband called me Hannah hyperbole and Diane dramatic so I tend to exaggerate, Elaine exaggerated all those little monikers, but I didn't, this is not exaggerated. My father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather on were governors of South Carolina with the same name. <laughs> Richard I Manning. And they were just statesmen. And so I had to like be this, pretend to be this Southern Belle. I was horrible. <laughs> but, you know, back then you kind of, if you're born Southern, you know, you're born with like, I mean, you can do anything. You can greet 50 people with your, with your ass hot, hanging down. I mean, you can do anything. Hey, Muffy. Hey, Whitney. Hey, come on in and you're really not okay. So the gratitude I have for being brought up that way is profound because I can handle anything. And now this hasn't necessarily helped me as an alcoholic because you know, we're supposed to surrender. We're supposed to like not fight everything. Well, my father was also a Marine. So I really know how to fight everything that comes along and not surrender. It's been a tough road for me. Maybe not for everybody, but for me, it's been hard for me to, to do that, to sort of get to, to accept direction. I mean, I have a wonderful sponsor now. <coughs> oh, God, somebody's torturing that child. I But um, so <coughs> But I have a wonderful sponsor now. I mean, I don't go to Pacific Group anymore, but she's Pacific Group. And she's—I've been with her for about 16 years, and she just is very, very programmed. She gives me direction, and boy, do I do it! You know, I do it. I'm not oppositional. I'm not defiant anymore. But for the first 20 years, I'm afraid I was that way. Six sponsors fired me my first year, (laughs) and I didn't know why. I couldn't believe it. I mean, just because I did everything they told me not to do, but I was used to that. I just—that's what I did. (laughs) Oh, God. I mean, I had I was I just didn't understand monogamy. It didn't make any sense to me. It was stupid. I mean, I never thought about it, but like, so I mean, uh, well, but it just made no sense to be with some and I was married. But so and so anyway, you know, I was I'm a product of the 60s. I mean, you did somebody if they bought you a cup of coffee. So the problem, the thing was that was still there. And I'd left the South. I'd gone to New York, which was another story because they just inherited me. I mean, that's I married a Yankee and that, I could have married a woman, Jewish, any leper, but not a Yankee. Oh my God. It was like, you what darling, you, who, who are you marrying? I'm marrying somebody from Brooklyn. What? Well, it, they, we ended up loving them, but you just don't do that if you're Southern. You don't go to the North. I couldn't wait to get out of the South. I wasn't allowed to go to school with men I went to college, to a girl's college. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I swear, it, that's the truth. But for some reason, being as weird as as my as Southerners are, I was allowed to go to Europe my junior year. And oh, what a time I had. I lived in Paris and I just hitchhiked, hitchhiked all over Europe by myself. Woo, I had so much fun. That's where I learned to not be faithful. <laughs> to not, <laughs> I did not learn it there, I just did it. But um, so I I have all the diseases, you know. I'm okay now. I'm okay now. But um, I didn't really get it. I just didn't understand the concept of any of that. And also, I started a master's program in psychology, my first year. And my sponsor said, "What are you doing that for?" And I said, "Because I want to." You're fired. Okay. So that was that. Then I started this rigorous uh, health um, program. I was fired for that. I was fired for everything. I just kept having these affairs with guys in the program, and I kept doing, first of all, I had lots of money. I had lots of property and prestige. I didn't need to do any of the things I was doing. Then I got a full-time job in a a financial office on Madison Avenue. I can't add. I can't do anything like that. I got fired from everything, but I had fun. So I got fired from all, but I didn't understand that I was being defiant. I just, that's just the way I was. It has been a tough road for me. And I do think now that I'm 38 years sober, I really mean this, I'm learning that maybe I have a real mental illness. I mean, I really, I mean, you know, I think everybody kind of gets that they do, but I think I thought you did and that I was intact. <laughs> but I I realize I'm not, I'm not okay. And I just haven't got, I just haven't gotten it. I I think that maybe that is the definition of mental illness. I'm a therapist and I don't know that. but. um it's pretty tough I mean I'm not trying to be cute and I'm not trying to get somebody to help tip oh no 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 I just haven't there are things that are just big blanks for me in this world that I don't get maybe I need another tree but anyway (laughs) so I'm going along I'm toodling along I moved to New York I'm an actress I've had a really easy time of it I got seen by an agent I got seen by another agent I started doing plays and TV and I am so miserable I want to kill myself because I can't handle rejection and I'm being rejected a lot in that business And I start to drink so much and I start to drink so much now I hadn't had that much to drink yet because I didn't want to be like my parents I saw what happened to everybody in, that, that drank. I mean everybody in the south was pickled you know and and it's just they I, I watched and they would just they would transform into these horrible people. They all look like the Kennedys at, you know, down by the boats. They'd be <laughs> smoking and these big teeth and drinking and drinking and drinking on the, the boats and <laughs> laughing on them. I just look up these teeth and I was so scared they looked like monsters all the time. I couldn't I didn't want to be like that. So I didn't drink. I didn't really drink until I was about twenty-two. And I started to when I drank at twenty-two, because I couldn't sleep, I had terrible insomnia. At 22, I was. I remember the night I was. I was doing a play on tour in Abingdon, Virginia, and I. This really wonderful actor named Brendan Fay told me that if I drank some red wine, I'd sleep, and I did, and I slept. And from that day until I got sober at 34, I drank every day, around the clock. I. I. It was never a, a moment where there was just a line crossed. It went all. I went right away. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop drinking. I drank and drank. I drank. I drank on stage. Oh God, this is so- <laughs> I turned up stage in a play that was a really big deal and pulled a flask out of a garter and glugged. And it, I was seen. And um, thank God it was the seventies because I didn't get in that much trouble. I did so much cocaine, my boob popped out of a corset in Washington, D.C. <laughs> was, it was, ho- <laughs> Yeah, some people liked it, but um, so anyway, but it, when you do the Folger Shakespeare theater in, in Washington, you have to do the whole Shakespearean play, and I was on stage for four hours, and I'd done a line of coke before I went on, it was just miserable. I just, it was horrible, so I was like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. and I just, I couldn't breathe, and I was corseted in this old, you know, wonderful, you know, the gowns and everything, wonderful costuming, but my boo popped out, and this, my, my fellow actors won going, I'm going, anyway, it was, and there, I, I was just, I was just a mess, it was falling apart, things were falling apart, so, on february the 18th oh, i was going to do a movie and the director said honey yeah, you got some miles on your face i said but this is a part of a a stripper in times square i mean she's supposed to look kind of uh you know over over the edge he, over the hill he goes not this way not the way you look i went you little shit! how dare you anyway he dared and um i knew something had to happen so i said to my husband And he was right there with me i mean we we were so awful together as alcoholics we were both violent and sometimes it looked like evenings at home with the rambos we were just always at with the it was bad it was bad and it was i was bottoming out so quickly that i i was bleeding i was just i knew i kind of knew i was dying because i would have the experience that i would leave my my physical body and move over to the other to the right side And I didn't know what it was, but I was looking back at myself and thinking, this is death, so I'm partly dead here. This isn't so bad, but that looks awful over there. And I had that experience a few times. I was leaving, I was dying. And the last drunk I had was in our country house in the Berkshires, and I drank, I don't know, I was really thin, and I drank about two half gallons of scotch, and It was awful, and even my husband, who's a big dude, that goes, oh honey, there's something wrong, and I was like, I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk. I slept that one off, and then I remember I sent him up to the country the next weekend, I was in bed with his best friend, because that's what I did, and I kicked his friend out, and I said, I'm going to a rehab, because I, well, no. Let me tell you about the first experience. I'll tell you the, how much time do I have? That time. I've had experiences with angels, I guess they are. I don't know what they are, but they feel like fluffy things. And they take me places. And I I don't know if this is true or not, but this is my experience. So I was sitting on my bed in New York City in my apartment on East 73rd Street. And I'm sitting there, and for some reason, this thing lifted me. From, there's, a, there's a phone right here now. This is 1985. And we didn't have answering machines, and we didn't have anything, you know, any, um, we had, the, the, the phones had cords. And so, I. but I, there was a phone here, but for some reason this sh- 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 thing lifted me, carried me down a little hallway into the kitchen for some reason, and the phone on the wall, and had me call Peter S. Peter was my friend who was in AA. And I said, Peter, I wanna to go to an AA, meaning I'm doing research for a movie. And he said something really snide like, oh, I, I've been waiting for you to call. Like, I thought, oh, you little shit, no. No, but anyway, I wanted to go do research. And so <clears throat> the next morning, I my, sent my husband up to our country house, kicked his friend out of bed. No, that's not what happened. Let me go. He, I, he took me to a meeting, my very first AA meeting on 53rd and 5th Avenue in New York. It was St. Thomas and took me into a room on the second floor. It was all polished with this beautiful, beautiful church. And I walked in and a woman was talking about the second step and she was backlit, and there was a beautiful aura around her of, of light, and I fell in love. I didn't know what she said. I didn't understand anything that anybody said. I didn't know what a second step was. I didn't know anything, but the, it, the room was suffused with light, and that was my first big experience. I, I just couldn't believe this feeling that what was happening to me, and I also remember that I couldn't make eye contact. I couldn't look at anybody in the eye because of my incredible degradation and pain and shame. And Peter took me out <laughs> to a coffee shop. Never been to a coffee shop. I'd lived in New York for 15 years. Never been to a coffee shop. I said, what are we doing? He said, coffee shop. I said, Peter, I need a drink. And he said, I know. Anyway, he told me I couldn't stop on my own because it was that I was bad, I was really bad and I needed to go into treatment. Now, I didn't know about anything called treatment. I didn't know I could go to Betty Ford or something. I had a lot of money. So I called this horrible place on 86th Street, and the next morning, like I said, kicking and carrying this, this guy out of bed. I got up, <clears throat> rubbed the rest of the Coke on my gums, swigged the rest of the vodka from the bottle on an empty stomach. God, I loved doing that. And um, put on makeup, which was just a joke because I couldn't even hold anything. And I packed my Louis Vuitton luggage, put on Chanel, and schlepped in the snow to rehab. Walked in and said, Hey, I'm here, I'm Catherine Manning and they didn't care. And so I they I I got the first resentment I've ever had. They took my vibrator. Oh. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It it, I I I I can't e I still can just feel it. I I can't tell you how upset I was. I was like, no, you cannot have that. Take the Valium. Take everything. Take my makeup. Take everything. But you can't have that. And they were just these nurses with these horrible looks and said, yes, we can, honey. We're taking it. Well, I really burned with rage for a year. I couldn't believe it. I had to check it out if I wanted it (laughs) Horrifying. It was horrifying. Well, it was horrifying. I was the only woman in this place, and I was the only white face. I didn't know what it was. It was for the transit workers, and they hated me. They hated me because I'd go to group and say,
5: "Talk about Daddy in the plantation."
4: And so, oh, no. <laughs> anyway, it was pretty. I didn't. It was. I was clueless. I was clueless, but. I had my second big experience my 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 big penultimate spiritual experience I was in my room it was about the third day and I disappeared into white light everything just disappeared and I left my body and I became nothing but love and I just started to feel like I was merging everywhere and I go up to the guys and go I just love you and they were just so Horrified that they began to love me too, and they all loved me. After 21 days, they just loved me. They called me Mrs. Shake and Bake because I'd be like, you know, trying to lay a cigarette. <laughs> they began to love me because that's what happens: is we just love. We can't help it. We can't help it. We just love. I couldn't. I can't even tell you what the experience was like. It just lasted and lasted and lasted, and these waves and waves of the love that I felt in the tree came back. And that is why I stay sober because that came back. God came back and if I I will not lose that again I will kill myself. I mean, I know I'll die if I lose that again. I can't can't lose it again. It's too precious That's what sobriety is for me and I've had terrible times. I mean, I've I've had a baby die I mean, I've had horrible experiences because that's what happens in 38 years. You have experiences life happens but everything has been manageable everything and Boy has my life suck sometimes. Oh, I was going to talk tonight, but I'm not going to because it's just, too awful. but it, when I was four, um, anyway, I, I stayed in that state and it was hard by the way, because my husband was not really, my, my husband, my husband did not stop drinking and he didn't want to stop drinking. So he was ho- really upset that he lost his drinking partner. So upset that he would, when I come home from whatever I did during the day after, after I re- released from, from this rehab place, I'd come home and I'd open the kitchen cabinet, I'd, you know, I'd come in and I'd open it and there was a line, a mirror with a line of coat and a martini made just the way I liked it every single night. Now back then we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have anything like that. I'd have to put my coat back on because it was February, March. I'd have to put my coat back on, walk out of the building, walk to the corner of 73rd and 2nd, go into a phone booth, remember? Phone booth, you put a dime in, you pick it up, you dial it, and I call my sponsor and she said the same thing every night. Darling, go back, dump out the drink, wash the glass, clean the mirror, put everything away, eat your dinner, go to bed. And I did it night after night for one year. One year, that's how bad I wanted it. I couldn't even imagine not wanting it. I was ecstatic to be sober. Every fractal, every piece of my life that hadn't worked fit in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was having these experiences. Now I was, you know, doing every guy, but um, you know, <laughs> that's just what I did. Eventually, oh God, eventually my husband, um, got sober too. And he, it was incredible. It took, a, it took him losing his job. It usually does for a guy. <laughs> You know, we said in New York, mercilessly, women get sober and look for jobs, men get sober and look for mommies. I know, I know, I know, I know. But that's what we said New York, it's New York. Okay. But anyway, so it was kind of merciless, but but he did, it, it, he did lose a huge, huge. He was the head of, of an ad agency, and he lost his job. He was just he was he was a wreck. So we had to change our lives, and we did. We simplified. Things became more clear. I knew I couldn't act anymore. I I knew I couldn't. I was unable to. And eventually, eventually, I had this spiritual awakening. I'm walking down the, I'm walking down the street, and this is like four years after I'm sober. I had a child. I'm pushing a pram, and I disappeared. It just it happened again i disappeared into a bliss that is unimaginable now i've always been a big meditator and i was meditating a lot then two hours a day but i became a complete witness to my own life it led me to india to a meditation teacher with my family it just became this gorgeous life and i said to my meditation teacher i want to become a therapist and she laughed which i thought was horrible I was put through sort of a series of spiritual tests, and eventually it all worked out, and I got an merit scholarship to NYU, and I, I became a therapist, and over these years I've done all these other trainings, I'm an ordained minister, I've got the raunchiest mouth you've ever heard, you know, I'm, yeah, I know. And, and I've done all these other trainings in, in, in oriental medicine and all these things, and I love, I have the best practice because I do exactly what I want. And thank God my sister reported me so many times because now I'm kind of not afraid of it anymore. Like it's pretty gruesome, but I'm radical. I'm not afraid, I'm radical. And I do, and I make a high six figure income after losing everything when I was 14 years sober, everything. People say, oh, I lost all my money. No, you didn't. I lost, but I lost all my money, everything. And I was 14 years sober. I went through such a bad time. The husband, the second husband that I loved with all my heart walked out, just walked out. And he took me to court, and for a year and a half, I was my own lawyer. Oh my God, I will tell you that my daughter got a fatal cancer, I lost everything, I lost my home, I lost everything. And something in me did it, because I wasn't doing meetings very well. In fact, I was, I'm shocked that I was sober. In fact, most people, the ch- three children probably would have done better, and I'm serious and I'm not trying to be funny, would have done better had I had drinks because I was so awful, I was such a shrew. My alcoholism is emotional, horrible behavior, and it came back in spades. in the big book says there will come a time when we're defenseless against the first drink. For me, it was defenseless against this horrible behavior. I was horrible. I, w- I just became insane. Now, believe me, he, he, it happened for a lot of reasons. But I was able to go to court three times a week, file my own pleadings, vacuum my own house, walk three dogs, take care of sick children, start a new business, start to make money, everything. And I know that there's a beautiful quote in the Vedas, which is a, a spiritual literature that says, we're not the doer, we're the done. I absolutely know because I had this experience that something in me in us carries us and does it for us because I, can't, I couldn't have done that. I mean, it was just this power that I mean it's not and you're not aware, I wasn't aware of it like, oh my God, look at this. It's so wonderful to be so spiritual and be carried by this power. It just kept going on and on. I got a terrible disease that it was so painful, I couldn't put bed sheets on my legs at night. It was so painful, called reflexive sympathetic dystrophy. Didn't take any anything for it. It just kept ha- things kept happening and moving and happening and moving And then finally with the recession I lost I went bankrupt and moved to a, a place I just considered I'd never lived La Crescenta. I'm still there now. It's a wonderful place I'm so happy I rent a house. I've never been happier in my life. My life is simple. I make money I love to hear the birds. I have a greyhound. She's so neurotic I rescued her from the track, and I have a Persian cat who's the ugliest cat I've ever seen. And I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm really, but it went through hell. I mean, it was like a lot of years of hell, just devastating hell. I wrote a book about it. The book did well. I'll first kill all the (laughs)
5: lawyers.
4: But but I, I know that we don't have anything to worry about. Just. It just happens. You don't have anything to worry about. It all works out. Life is benevolent. There's a force that keeps carrying us. No matter how much we gripe and grudge and everything, it just keeps moving up. God! Damn! You know, I like to say something about the phallic symbol, but to edibly charged, you know, challenged men. But I won't. Anyway, I, I think that's enough. I just, um, I love AA. It's, it's, it is my life. I, I just love it. I, I love to practice meditation. I started doing it again recently, really dedicated to it. And I just go so deep. And I think I walk around in a trance anyway. I bump into stuff, cause it, maybe because I'm old. But um, I just really have to tell you, we are the luckiest people on earth to be here. And if you're not, if you're not sober, so what? Just stay here anyway. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't. Welcome to the 29-Day Wonder, and I gotta tell you, I love, you know, Clint Hodges said, if you like everybody in AA, you haven't been to enough, you're not going to enough meetings. <laughs> every, I hate everything, everybody's little tendencies and shit, but I love, every. I truly love you. I mean, it can say that, and I mean it with a big, broad, open heart. I love you, and thank you for having me. All right. <laughs> oh.
6: I'm less alcoholic yes. wow. let's give Catherine and greg a hand for a great meeting yeah. and we and we'd like to welcome carlo back our yeah. cooker yeah. and we want to thank everybody that's helped us set up and that bring food every week it's really been good and uh, if you want to get involved come see fernando or i uh, after the meeting we, we have some some spots here that we need help with and afterwards if you'd help us all carry everything to the truck help fernando we'd appreciate it okay where's uh where's our ticket man tickets oh well, we got some good stuff we're gonna
7: Right here good evening everyone my name is nick and i'm an alcoholic
5: hey,
7: all right we're going to be raffling off two books today and a god box so oh, lots of surprises one of the books that we're raffling is our great responsibility a selection of bill williams uh general service conference talks and um another one called i am responsible the hand of aa Selected stories from the AA grapevine. Okay. And a god box. You know, so if Les can go and help me out. Picking some tickets.
4: Pick those tickets.
7: Okay. First one <clears throat> ending
5: in 1836. 1836. Ooh, ooh, All ooh, right. ooh, ooh, ooh. ooh. There
1: yeah. Catherine said
7: that's it. That's it. <laughs> Which one would you like? To
1: put the bottom one.
7: Yeah, no.
1: black one. Right. Yeah. one. There you go. Right. Awesome. Really good one. Yay!
7: All right, Fernando. There we go. Two more. Two more, guys.
5: There
7: you go. Okay. Next one. Ending in 1839. No. <laughs> 1839. <laughs> There, there we go. One, eight, three, nine. which one would you like? Um, so you got the book or the God Box? The book? Okay, there you go. Thank you, thank you. Hey,
5: Christine, we did it. All right, this
7: is the God Box, guys, okay? Last one. There we go. And these numbers end in 1788. 1788. From 788, anyone? Going once. Oh,
6: there we go. Nice. A That's a good one.
4: God box. box is good. Uh-huh.
6: You know how to use it, right? It's a, it's a good one. God Box is good. There you go. for you. There's our winner. There you go. Hi,
5: thank you so much.
7: You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. And thank
6: you guys for letting me be of service. Bye, Nick. I'm less alcoholic. I'm your Grapevine rep. Two years, 50, 50 uh, 58 bucks. I got uh, two back this week. And uh, the first one I'm going to give away is, is on acceptance. It's really a good one. What we do is uh, Grapevine is a meeting in a print. Uh, you know, you get, I always say you get stuck on stupid and you're in the car and you read one of these little stories and it'll straighten you right up and get you to the next stop line. Oh boy. So, uh, or you could, yeah, you're to uh, read while you drive. <laughs> Jerry said you
4: can't read while you drive. Oh, <laughs> that's or t- really stupid. Yeah.
6: <laughs> so <laughs> you could send a subscription to the hospital or penitentiary, or you could give, a, give it to a newcomer. So, here it is. Acceptance. I got to take her?
1: Here, I'll take it. Day, there's a big one. All right, Dave.
6: I got a guy in New York who really use it. New York? Yes, sir. Wow. Okay. I got one more. The grapevine. This be- beautiful truth. Singing and searching. Can we get. It? Here's one more. Come get it. Somebody wants her to read it and then bring it back. No takers? All right. All right, Ray. I'll bring it back to you. All right. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for sharing, and with that, Jerry, come on up and read the promises and pray us out of here.
1: There is. All right, brother. Love you, too, brother. My name is Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jerry. Promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down... The scale we have gone, we will see how our experiences can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and our outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We, we think God. not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always make materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silence for those who still suffer in and out of these rooms, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen.
0: More about alcoholism which follows chapter one, by the way. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we can drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing, many pursuing the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. That is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people maybe or presently has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who lost the ability to control our drinking. No real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were gaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We're convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs, they never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other people. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there's been brief recovery followed always by a still worse relapse. Positions who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Mm. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they're in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, <sighs> We will try to prove ourselves uh, therefore non-alcoholic. That means no near beer with .005 alcohol. That don't count. If anyone who is showing the ability to control our drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman. Yeah, right. Our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, Hmm. drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if you were drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitments to asylums, we can increase the list at Inconaida. all
1: right.
2: Thank you.
3: First, for recovery depends on AA a- a- unity. Number two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority. A loving God is may express himself and be conscious. Our leaders are trusted servants, they do not govern. Number three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to start drinking. Uh, Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting AA or the group as a whole. Number five, each group has but one primary purpose: to carry the message to other to, to, to alcoholics who still suffer. Number six, an AA group are never endorse, finance, or the AA name to any related facility, outside enterprise. Less problems of money, operating prestige, separate from our primary purpose. Number seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting finance our contributions. Number eight, our colleagues anonymous should remain forever non-professional. But our service boards, our service center excuse me, may create may, may employ special workers, I'm sorry about that. Uh number eight, number nine. AA as such shall never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Number ten a cult synonymous has n- no opinion on outside issues, and CIA name ought never be done by controversy. Number eleven. A corporate relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintaining anonymity please, personal anonymity for that press, radio, and film. Number twelve. <coughs> anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to face principles before personalities.
1: Thank you again. Okay, my out there pretty
2: quickly. So my name is Craig, and I am an alcoholic, or I'm still an alcoholic. Hi, Craig. Um, and it's one of those things you never turn down an AA um, ask. And I was asked if I was going to be the main speaker. And then when I found out, I was asked if I was willing to lead and be the 10-minute speaker. I said, absolutely. So the good news is I didn't have any chance to think about what I was gonna say, so that means I'm not nervous. Um, but you know, it's just interesting as I'm standing here. Oh, first of all, Caroline, congratulations on 29 days. You're yeah, the most important person right. in this meeting, right? Me, yeah. so thank you, yeah. for having the courage to show up. Um, but a, a couple things running through my mind, right? It's a Friday night and I'm with a bunch of alcoholics. Nothing has changed.
3: The only thing is that I'm sober
2: as compared to the way I used to be, right? But um, I just was kind of thinking about about the past and what it was like. And I think the best way to summarize, uh, in 1981, I think I was 23 23 years old, and I had this job in a supermarket, and they were going to have a brand new grand opening of this store. So two nights before, they gave me the keys and asked if I would show up at six o'clock in the morning to let everybody in on a Sunday. And I'm from Massachusetts, a union town. So there's guys, you know, double time, triple time and everything. I went out the night before and at 10 o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on my door, letting me know that I was supposed to be someplace at six o'clock. So a couple words go through my mind. I jump in my car. I drive and I get there and, you know, I'm, I'm ready to get fired basically. And I get called into the manager's office and again this is back in the early 80s and she's a woman this is a tough tough profession to be you know a boss in that she calls me in she goes you're drunk i go nope i'm not drunk she goes i'm going to fire you i go and all of a sudden out of the clip i go you cannot fire me i'm an alcoholic i have a disease and i'm protected right where the hell that came from is beyond me and then 23 years later, I finally came into the program. But you know, it just kind of goes that, you know, that was where my thinking was. And, and, and for me, I distinguished it, you know, I might've been an alcoholic, but I wasn't a drunk. Right? That was the difference. I could, I could function, I could have a job and I could kind of get my way through society. And for the longest time, my theory was everybody drank the way I drank. I mean, it seemed to be everyone I was around did that. But i soon realized that maybe there's an you know, attraction of, of of people with similar interests so i was just kind of bouncing around and you know i was always i started drinking because i was like so many people and you know, i didn't fit in something wasn't right but yet alcohol at first drink just lifted all my um, <clears throat> all those insecurities that i had and it became the life of the party you know, I could talk to anybody and I could just kind of flirt and fool around and just had a kind of grand old time. And the other thing too about <clears throat> living in Massachusetts at the time, drinking and driving, which was something that was very tolerated. You never, you very rarely got a ticket unless you got into an accident. So that was kind of nice from that perspective. And I just kind of bounced along and I was always drinking and always partying and always having a good time. But you know what? I always controlled it. At least in my mind, I controlled it. And I, and I continued on and I finished up school, uh, college, and I got a job in a, in a place where I was the last person hired and I didn't really belong in this organization, but they hired me anyways. But I found out if you drink, you could get, you could get ahead. So I continued to drink and continued to drink and I, 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 but I basically said, now it's part of my job. I have to do this, right? And again, I was still controlling it. And I was just listening to you know some of the measures we go through. I used to stop drinking. Um, from basically the first week in in January to April 15th every year. Um, April 15th because I did taxes and that was a good day to stop, start again. But, you know, it was like I could control it. I could control it. And I was just having fun. I was always having fun. But then I started realizing that it was getting a little hard to get up during the day, you know. And my drinking during the day might start a little earlier than it did before. But I still controlled it. And I was working with two other guys who were older than I was. And we would go out every well, Monday through Friday, we'd go out for drinks. And one of them said, you know, I think we're drinking too much, okay? And we probably are. And it said, you know what? Why don't we limit ourselves to 15 drinks a week, okay? Monday through Friday. So that means three a night. So Monday night, we're sitting there, and the three go down, and they go, well maybe we can borrow a couple from Tuesday (laughs) alcoholic thinking right and you can imagine the 15 drinks you know didn't work but anyways it was all it was all fun and games but then one day it wasn't fun and games anymore I needed that alcohol I thought I controlled it but it controlled me um I suddenly found myself married with a couple children responsibilities and I was always drinking but yet again I thought I was functioning and slowly but surely my world got smaller and smaller and smaller and again i didn't really notice it because everybody I was around was drinking and um my parents passed away and my wife who was a normie suggested that maybe she tricked me to get into this program by the way she she suggested i go see a grievance counselor because i was grieving a little bit too much about my parents i wasn't grieving enough i should say i told her in no uncertain terms Two words that I grieve the way I grieve. So I went to see this person, and it turned out he was one of us, right? He was a counselor. And I didn't know it at the time, and he asked me how much I drank, and I told him. He goes, don't you think that's a little excessive? No, I go, you know, for you guys in the ivory tower, I don't know what you do, but for us, this is the way we drink out there. But yet, I was willing to go to this, you know, to, to go to this, for some reason, I just, you know, I just, something happened. I don't know what had happened. I was just tired sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I went and saw this guy, and he kind of helped me with the 12 steps, and he suggested that I go to a meeting. But the first thing he suggested was I go out and get a big book. And I go, what's a big book? He goes, everyone knows what a big book is. Okay. So I go down to Barnes & Noble, and I walk and I go, hey, you got any big books? And I go, what? I go, yeah, everyone knows the big book, you know? the big. We had plenty of big books. Turns out they didn't have what they wanted, and I was, you know, I wasn't quite on board with what was going on. And then I showed up to a meeting, and I couldn't believe it. There were people like laughing, and and they weren't drinking. And I'm like, how could that possibly happen? And I, I you know, I didn't really feel like I fit in. But you know, it was one of those. I just I kept coming back. I kept coming back because I, it felt better to not drink than it did to drink, and. i'm I'm an irish catholic guy from boston so we think we have more guilt than anybody and i thought everything i did i had all kinds of shame but what i loved was you know first of all to sit in the meeting and listen to the stories and realize that wow you know maybe i wasn't quite the scumbag that i thought I was you know maybe this is you know what, what a lot of people have issues and then you found out that you could talk to anybody and you weren't judged because we're all alcoholics. We know what we're going through. And, you, you know, and whatever I was going through, somebody else had been through. There's no original thought, and it was kind of nice because it didn't take me long for the squirrels, the monkeys, or whatever the hell's up there to get me off course. But I could call somebody, I could talk to someone, and I could just kind of get back on course. And what I found out was I, I wasn't missing alcohol because I was feeling so good when I get up in the morning. And the other thing is, I could remember what I told people the night before. I, you know, when I was drinking, I I lied, I had no idea what I was telling people, but it was just nice to have this clear mind and be able to talk to people. And the other thing for me was, I was continuing down this road and I'm sure I would have drunk myself to death, who knows what would have happened. But as a result, I I got to know my family better. I got to know my children better. And if it wasn't for this program, I don't think that would have happened. And now they're, they're in their 20s and they come home for the holidays because they want to be home. They come home to, they come home to talk to dad. I still have to tell them my story, right, about what happened to me and be real honest. And that, that was a, a hurdle for me to sit down and tell my children what had happened to me. But yet, you know, to have that love and to have people around you like that, it's something special. And to me, the biggest one of the biggest benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous was during COVID. We had a place to go. We had people to talk to, people that understood. And there was a whole world out there that didn't have anybody. So I think Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, really helped me through, through the whole COVID period. And, you know, it was one of those, like, you know, I kept going kept, you know, I kept coming, kept suiting up, showing up and, you know, did the steps, did the next indicated steps, listened to what I was told to do. Um, <coughs> my, uh, my, by my, by the way, my sobriety day design. January 10th, uh, two, 2004, and it wasn't until about 10 years I got into this program that I really started to understand it a little bit better. What I found out the longer I've been in it, the less I understand it. But what I what I know is you just show up and you just listen, right? You just listen. You get the uh, you get the cotton out of your ears and you put it in your mouth <laughs> and you know what's going on. And and there's always again there's always someone to talk to, someone you can lean into. And what I find, you know, my life is my life is, goes well, but it's not perfect. But when things get rough, all you have to do is be of service, show up, help another alcoholic. Actually, help somebody not even in the program, right? You know, just be a, be the best human being I can be. And I, I'm always reminded of a of a of a speech that Bill Wilson gave to in Culver City in the 50s. And he said, you know, we always make a big deal about trying to you know, work the 12 steps. And he said, if we get up in the morning and we go through the day with the intent of not hurting anybody and helping somebody, and at the end of the day, we didn't hurt anybody and we didn't help anybody, if we sat down, we realized, you know what? We lived the principles of the program that day. And to me, that's the simplest thing. i go out and try to be the best person I can be. i go out to try to help somebody. And I try my best not to be too self-centered and selfish. So. That ends Craig, thanks for letting me share. And with that, I'll introduce to Catherine, right. our new speaker. Oh,
4: thank you. Way to go. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to come right now. Hi. Hi. Uh, don't I miss anything that's juicy. <laughs> 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 thank you, Craig. <laughs> um, job, that was good, Craig, thank you. Thank you, Les, for asking. Uh, my name's Catherine, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, okay. Catherine. I'm so cold, but um, I'll just dance around a little bit. Um, thank you, Les, for asking me to speak. Thank you, Lisa, for these duds. Thank you, Craig, for being my road dog. And um, I was gonna time myself, because uh, I talked so much. Just a second, you don't. you'll be here, you'll be frozen to You'll be frozen to death, ah! Ah! Frozen to death. <laughs> just a minute. Um, I'm gonna get myself together, here I go. Okay. My sobriety date is February the 18th, 1985. Ooh, All right. I know, right? I look so good, but um, I'm gonna—I'll be, be 38 years sober next in three and a half weeks. If I make it, and I think I'll make it All because right. I really love this, and I'm just chronologically got sober when I was two. So you know, it's not really—that's a lie. The thing is, I can't believe I'm sober because I—I um, I just couldn't understand why anybody would do this. It was so stupid. I thought because. Like I just drank, you know. I just drank. I was wonderful. I thought I was a mess. I was so hum. I was so easily humiliated. Anyway, I'll, I'm going to go all over the place because I'm, if you have iPhones, you know, you can track, and everybody's unfocused anyway. So, deal, you know, so deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm going to put this here. <clears throat> Forty forty-four more minutes. <laughs> um, but anyway. Okay. So. I'm a terrible alcoholic. I couldn't stop drinking. I'm a terrible slut, and I'm a terrible drug addict. Mm-hmm. Those are outside issues, but I'll talk about those a little bit since you can't really see me right now. It's is dark. Oh God. Okay. I grew up on this. I grew up in the most beautiful, beautiful place on earth. I really have been. I've traveled a bit, and I I really think that Wadmalaw Island, South Carolina. Um, which is not even on a map, it's in the Low Country. is the most exquisite place I've ever seen. It, is, it will bring tears to your eyes. It's just pure poetry. And I talk about God, because I don't know about what God is. I just know that this experience that I have in my life is so magnificent, I call it God. And this is what I like to say, you know, you're like this, I think. I don't believe in God. <laughs> Because I can't limit the experience to a concept or a belief. It's too good. It's too big. It's too great. I just deal. I just can't tell you how big my experience of what I call God is. And I learned it up a tree in Wadmo Island, South Carolina, of this beautiful oak tree with the its boughs dipping down into the water, with Spanish moss hanging down. uh Oh, Spanish moss hanging down. And in, in the, the tree is two hundred years old. And I had an experience over and over and over again as a little girl of God. I saw lights and sparkles and I heard celestial choirs and I was six, seven, eight years old. And even though the juxtaposition of that with 20 feet away in this old plantation house with a very violent father and a bitch of a Scottish mother who used to
1: talk (laughs) with secret.
4: And she was just so difficult, but it didn't matter because here was this power, this magnificence, this beauty, and it was mine. And I could go there and I was always safe. I was always so... It's an experience of being in the right place at the right time. And the only other place I've ever had it is in an AA meeting. And in India with my meditation teacher, which I might talk about a little bit, but maybe not. But I've just, the, the sense of rightness, of being right, of being in the right place and safe, is so powerful. And I don't know if people really appreciate <coughs> appreciate that sometimes with this power, because I feel odd. I'm, I'm not really, I don't really fit anywhere. I'm an identical twin. It sucks so much to be an identical twin. It's a karmic horror. Now, m- most people that when I talk and I, I don't tell the story a lot anymore, but I'll tell you, I was a double mint twin in the 70s. We were the original, double your pleasure, double your fun with double the double the double mint gum you're supposed to do that smile. So <laughs> Now, nobody can get mad at me for not telling you that story. There apparently are um, original doublement twins every two years. So we were the ones in New York from 76 to 78. Yeah, I am old. So um, we did that. And if I had the money I made from those national residuals, I, I put it all up my nose. But if I had that money today, oh, God, I'd be so rich. So I did it. <laughs> Oh my God. But I did a lot of those commercials. I did a lot of television. I did a lot of that stuff. And people really like the twin stuff. It, it's just sort of a weird thing to be at. I mean, we're identical, which is just so horrible to think that an egg splits in two. Oh God, it's so gross. But I, anyway, my sister and I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. and I don't have another experience of not being a twin, so I don't know what it's like really. But I do know that my sister, is gone to this disease I mean she's alive but um, she has a fentanyl pump in her stomach and she got that because she told her doctor she was going to commit suicide if she didn't get it and she drinks a lot of wine and she takes a lot of pills and she's just so wet-brained she's so it's just tragic this was a beautiful valuable human being who looks 20 years older than me and she's just she's just a mess and she just she lives on and thrives on just attacking me and going after my credentials i'm a psychotherapist now and she's reported me five times to the board of psychology and tried to go out and she's just it's it's horrible and you know no it's not it's a terrible thing that she's done but i just don't talk to her anymore so 18 years have gone by and i don't talk to her because she just breaks out this disease is so horrible it's it's you know, it's pernicious. It's it's fatal. It's it's just a terror. It's a horrible disease, and nobody. Sometimes I just can't believe how much it destroys people. It destroyed my first marriage. I mean, it destroyed it. Things were so good, and then I was talking to Craig in the car coming here, and um, I just adored my husband, and and he, we got sober together in New York. I mean, he was a big advertising guy, and I was a big that ta actress, <laughs> and um so and and we got sober and it was hard it was really hard i got sober first and then he got sober and things changed but we were wonderfully happy and and we had a child and we had we were planning another child and then he drank after 10 years and everything turned upside down fast everything was lost i mean fast he, everything that the big book talks about that it took down families like a tornado it just took it took everything down we lost everything and it it's it's impossible to conceive of because i look at some of the pictures of how happy we were hiking up at lake tahoe and and he's there and the, and our child's in the front smiling like home alone and and you know there's a golden retriever it's a perfect tableau and then about a month later it was destroyed it was gone and he spent all of our money giving it all away to a charlotte and i mean we had a lot of money He'd given it away to somebody because he didn't have a brain left in his head, he lost his job, he went to jail, he he went to prostitutes, gone, 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 gone. And we were both really big people and it just it destroyed our lives, it destroyed this child. She lost her father, I lost my husband, he lost himself and he's dead now. And uh, oh my god, that's the disease and if you think it can't happen to you, think again, because it can and hopefully it'll be you that that happens to and not some in your family because it's exquisitely painful if somebody's taken from you this way and they can be taken without little physical deaths it's the worst disease this disease is progressive and it's fatal and you know jails institutions well, there's nothing but that and it happened to me and i am a la-di-da person i mean i am the daughter of a governor i am pot you know what and, and you better know it i mean people have to know it so but yeah you know, it, it's it's just i remember my father once said my father was um he my father was a real violent rageaholic and he used to just i used to i was very skinny and and i just wanted to make him love me and please me and i used to shoot guns and try to and I was so skinny and little and I used to hurt myself and I'd ride horses and he'd take a whip to the horse and to me just, I, I couldn't get over a jump. When I was 12, my father had a religious conversion. He, he had a spiritual awakening. And I've never heard of anyone having this, except our big book ta- talks about it. It talks about the re- varieties of religious experience, William James. He had one of these without, uh, you know, and he still he drank. He continued to drink, but he never became, he never was an alcoholic again. Now this can happen because I saw it with my own eyes and he became the most wonderful man cherished and he just adored me and he never used bad language. He never was violent. He became an incredible human being because he had a complete spiritual awakening. It can happen, it can happen, it happened like that. It was a magnificent experience. And he became somebody he hadn't been. Thank God for him, because he became somebody that was really my mentor, my coach, my guide, my friend, all through life, all through the rest of my life from the time I was 12, thank God, because he had been a real mean curmudgeon man. He'd been horrible. But anyway, that happened. And as I moved through my life, as a child, I I was very, well, I just wanted to be in the tree. I just wanted the experience of God over and over and over again. I would go out in my little boat. I had a five and a half horsepower boat and I would, I just, I'd turn it on. What do you call it? Pull it, pull that thingy and go out into the England waterway and I'd lie on my back and I'd look up at the clouds. Now I had my mother's pack of Newports. I was about 10 and I'd go boom, and blow those smoke rings, you know, now back then parents weren't quite as worried about kids all the time like they are today so I go home at the end of the day and I say mom didn't you worry about me she would go "Oh, darling I saw the smoke rings I knew you were fine (laughs) uh, you know I mean I was gone 12 hours you know I'd be gone and I say to my dad were you worried he said well I saw the armadillo bones in my hunting jacket so no I wasn't worried (laughs) boy that is a different world today parents are on their kids You know, but, is this the one I brought? Yeah. Just a minute, I got a swig, still swigging, but it's water. And I don't have to plan where I'm gonna get my next bottle. Mm. I don't have to think about it and just call ahead and see if it's gonna be there. Oh, what a relief. (laughs) And be coy about it, you know, like, what what kind do you have? (laughs) What kind of bottled water are you gonna serve? I I can only have a certain kind, I'm allergic you know. <clears throat> God Almighty! What a town! Anyway, I grew up in the South, and my my father, the grandfather. This is true. You can you can check it out if you don't believe me, because I tend to my my husband called me Hannah hyperbole and Diane dramatic, so I tend to exaggerate. Elaine exaggerate all those little monikers, but I didn't. This is not exaggerated. My father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather on were governors of South Carolina with the same name, <laughs> Richard L. Manning. And they were just statesmen. And so I had to, like, be this, pretend to be this Southern belt. I was horrible. <laughs> but, you know, back then, you kind of, if you're born Southern, you know, you're born with, like, I mean, you can do anything. You can greet 50 people with your with your ass hot, hanging down. I mean, you can do anything. Hey, Muffy. Hey, Whitney. Hey, come on in and you're really not okay. So the gratitude I have for being brought up that way is profound because I can handle anything. And now this hasn't necessarily helped me as an alcoholic because you know, we're supposed to surrender. We're supposed to like not fight everything. Well, my father was also a Marine. So I really know how to fight everything that comes along and not surrender. It's been a tough road for me. Maybe not for everybody, but for me, it's been hard for me to to do that, to sort of get to, to accept direction. I mean, I have a wonderful sponsor now. <coughs> oh, come on! Somebody's torturing that child. Little <laughs> but um, so, <coughs> but I have a wonderful sponsor now. I mean, I don't go to Pacific Group anymore, but she's Pacific Group. And she's, I've been with her for about 16 years. And she just is very, very programmed. She gives me direction. And boy, do I do it. You know, I do it. I'm not oppositional. I'm not defiant anymore. But for the first 20 years, I'm afraid I was that way, six sponsors fired me my first
5: year.
4: <laughs> and I didn't know why. I couldn't believe it. I mean, just because I did everything they told me not to do. But I was used to that. I just, that's what I did. <laughs> Oh, God, I mean, I had, I was, I just didn't understand monogamy. It didn't make any sense to me. It was stupid. I mean, I never thought about it, but like, so, I mean, uh, well, but it just made no sense to be with some, I was married, but so, and so anyway, you know, I was, I'm a product of the 60s. I mean, you did somebody if they bought you a cup of coffee. So the problem, the thing was, that was still there. And I'd left the South. I'd gone to New York, which was another story because they just inherited me. I mean, that's I married a Yankee and that, I could have married a woman, Jewish, any leper, but not a Yankee. Oh my God, it was like, you what darling? You, who, who are you marrying? I'm marrying somebody from Brooklyn. What? Well, it, they, we ended up loving them, but you just don't do that if you're Southern. You don't go to the North. I couldn't wait to get out of the South. I wasn't allowed to go to school with men I went to college, to a girl's college. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I swear, it, that's the truth. But for some reason, being as weird as as my as Southerners are, I was allowed to go to Europe my junior year. And oh, what a time I had. I lived in Paris and I just hitchhiked, hitchhiked all over Europe by myself. Woo, I had so much fun. That's where I learned to not be faithful. <laughs> to not, <laughs> I did not learn it there, I just did it. But um, so I I have all the diseases, you know. (laughs) I'm okay now. (laughs)
5: I'm
4: okay now. But um, I didn't really get it. I just didn't understand the concept of any of that. And also, I started a master's program in psychology, my first year, and my sponsor said, "What are you doing that for?" And I said, "Because I want to." You're fired. Okay. So that was that. Then I started this rigorous uh, health um, program. I was fired for that. I was fired for everything. I just kept having these affairs with guys in the program, and I kept doing, first of all, I had lots of money. I had lots of property and prestige. I didn't need to do any of the things I was doing. Then I got a full-time job in a a financial office on Madison Avenue. I can't add. I can't do anything like that. I got fired from everything, but I had fun. So I got fired from all, but I didn't understand that I was being defiant. I just, that's just the way I was. It has been a tough road for me. And I do think now that I'm 38 years sober, I'm really mean this, I'm learning that maybe I have a real mental illness. I mean, I really, I mean, you know, I think everybody kind of gets that they do, but I think I thought you did and that I was intact. <laughs> but I I realize I'm not, I'm not okay. And I just haven't got, I just haven't gotten it. I I think that maybe that is the definition of mental illness. I'm a therapist and I don't know that. but. Um, it's pretty tough i mean i'm not trying to be cute and i'm not trying to get somebody to help oh no 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 i just haven't there are things that are just big blanks for me in this world that i don't get maybe i need another tree but anyway (laughs) so i'm going along i'm toodling along i moved to new york i'm an actress i had a really easy time of it i got seen by an agent i got seen by another agent i started doing plays and tv and I am so miserable. I want to kill myself because I can't handle rejection, and I'm being you know, rejected a lot in that business. And I start to drink so much, and I start to drink so much. Now I hadn't had that much to drink yet because I didn't want to be like my parents. I saw what happened to everybody in, that that drank. I mean, everybody in the South was pickled, you know. And and it's just they. I I watched, and they would just they would transform into these horrible people. They all looked like the Kennedys at, you know, down by the boats, they'd be <laughs> smoking and these big teeth and drinking and drinking and drinking on the, the boats and <laughs> laughing. I just look up these teeth and I was so scared. They looked like monsters all the time. I couldn't, I didn't want to be like that. So I didn't drink. I didn't really drink until I was about 22. And I started to, when I drank at 22, because I couldn't sleep, I had terrible insomnia. At 22, I was, I remember the night I was, I was doing a play on tour in Abingdon, Virginia, and I, this really wonderful actor named Brendan Fay told me that if I drank some red wine I'd sleep. And I did, and I slept. And from that day until I got sober at 34, I drank every day around the clock. I. I. It was never a, a moment where there was just a line crossed, it went all, I went, right away. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop drinking. I drank and drank. I drank. I drank on stage. Oh God, this is so <laughs> I turned up stage in a play that was a really big deal and pulled a flask out of a garter and glugged And it, I was seen. And um, thank God it was the seventies because I didn't get in that much trouble. I did so much cocaine, my boob popped out of a corset in Washington, D.C. <laughs> was, it was, ho- <laughs> Yeah, some people liked it, but um, so anyway, but it, when you do the Folger Shakespeare Theater in, in Washington, you have to do the whole Shakespearean play, and I was on stage for four hours, and I'd done a line of coke before I went on. It was just miserable. I just, it was horrible, so I was like, <laughs> and I just, I couldn't breathe, and I was corseted in this old, you know, wonderful, you know, the gowns and everything, wonderful costuming, but my boo popped out, and this, my, my fellow actors one going, I'm going. Anyway, it was, and there, I never, I was just, I was just a mess. It was falling apart. Things were falling apart. So, on February the 18th, Oh, I was gonna do a movie, and the director said, "Honey, yeah, you got some miles on your face." I said, "But this is a part of a, a stripper in Times Square. I mean, she's supposed to look kind of uh, you know, over over the edge, he, over the hill." He goes, "Not this way. Not the way you look." I went, "You little shit! How dare you?" Anyway, he dared, and um, I knew something had to happen. So I said to my husband, and he was right there with me. I mean, we we were so awful together as alcoholics we were both violent and it, sometimes it looked like evenings at home with the rambos we were just always at, with with it was bad it was bad and it was i was bottoming out so quickly that i i was bleeding i was just i knew i kind of knew i was dying because i would have the experience that i would leave my my physical body and move over to the other to the right side and i didn't know what it was but i was looking back at myself and thinking this is death, so I'm partly dead here. This isn't so bad, but that looks awful over there. And I had that experience a few times. I was leaving, I was dying. And the last drunk I had was in our country house in the Berkshires. And I drank, I don't know, I was really thin. And I drank about two half gallons of scotch. And it was awful. And even my husband, who's a big dude, that goes, oh honey there's something wrong and I was like I couldn't talk I couldn't talk I slept that one off and then I remember I sent him up to the country the next weekend and I was in bed with his best friend because that's what I did and I kicked his friend out and I said I'm going to a rehab because I well no let me tell you about the first experience I'll tell you how <clears throat> much time do I have that time I've had experiences with angels, I guess they are. I don't know what they are, but they feel like fluffy things. And they take me places. And I I don't know if this is true or not, but this is my experience. So I was sitting on my bed in New York City in my apartment on East 73rd Street. And I'm sitting there, and for some reason, this thing lifted me. From, there's, a, there's a phone right here now. This is 1985. And we didn't have answering machines, and we didn't have anything, you know, any, um, we had, the, the, the phones had cords. And so, I. but I, there was a phone here, but for some reason this sh- 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 thing lifted me, carried me down a little hallway into the kitchen for some reason, and the phone on the wall, and had me call Peter S. Peter was my friend who was in AA. And I said, Peter, I wanna to go to an AA, meaning I'm doing research for a movie. And he said something really snide like, Oh, I, I've been waiting for you to call. like I thought, oh, you little shit. No, no. But anyway, I wanted to go do research. And so <clears throat> the next morning, I my, sent my husband up to our country house, kicked his friend out of bed. No, that's not what happened. Let me go. He, I, he took me to a meeting, my very first AA meeting, on 53rd and 5th Avenue in New York. It was St. Thomas. And took me into a room on the second floor it was all polished with this beautiful beautiful church and i walked in and a woman was talking about the second step and she was backlit and there was a beautiful aura around her of, of light and i fell in love i didn't know what she said i didn't understand anything that anybody said i didn't know what a second step was i didn't know anything but the, it, the room was suffused with light and that was my first big experience i i just couldn't believe this feeling that what was happening to me and I also remember that I couldn't make eye contact I couldn't look at anybody in the eye because of my incredible degradation and pain and shame and Peter took me out (laughs) to a coffee shop never been to a coffee shop I'd lived in New York for 15 years never been to a coffee shop I said what are we doing he said coffee shop I said Peter I need a drink and he said I know anyway he told me I couldn't stop on my own because it was that I was bad I was really bad and I needed to go into treatment. Now, I didn't know about anything called treatment. I didn't know I could go to Betty Ford or something. I had a lot of money, so I called this horrible place on 86th Street, and the next morning, like I said, kicking and this friend this guy out of bed. I got up, <clears throat> rubbed the rest of the Coke on my gums, swigged the rest of the vodka from the bottle on an empty stomach, God, I loved doing that, and um, put on makeup, which was just a joke because I couldn't even hold anything. And I packed my Louis Vuitton luggage, put on Chanel, and schlepped in the snow to rehab. Walked in and said, Hey, I'm here, I'm Catherine Manning and they didn't care. And so I they I, I got the first resentment I've ever had. They took my vibrator. Oh Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It, it I, I, I I can't I still can just feel it. I I can't tell you how upset I was. I was like, no, you cannot have that. Take the Valium, take everything. Take my makeup, take everything. But you can't have that. And they were just these nurses with these horrible looks and said, yes, we can, honey. We're taking it. Well, I really burned with rage for a year. I couldn't believe it. I had to check it out if I wanted it. Horrifying. It was horrifying. <laughs> well, it was horrifying. I was the only woman in this place, and I was the only white face. I didn't know what it was. It was for the transit workers, and they hated me. They hated me because I'd go to group and say, "Talk about Daddy in the plantation." <laughs> and so, oh, no! <laughs> anyway, it was pretty. I didn't. It was. I was clueless. I was clueless, but. I had my second big experience, my, my, my big penultimate spiritual experience. I was in my room. It was about the third day and I disappeared into white light. Everything just disappeared and I left my body and I became nothing but love. And I just started to feel like I was merging everywhere. And I go up to the guys and go, I just love you. And they were just so, Horrified that they began to love me too, and they all loved me. After 21 days, they just loved me. They called me Mrs. Shake and Bake because I'd be like, you know, trying to light a cigarette. They began to love me because that's what happens: is we just love. We can't help it. We can't help it, we just love. I couldn't. I can't even tell you what the experience was like. It just lasted and lasted and lasted, and these waves and waves of the love that I felt in the tree came back. And that is why I stay sober because that came back God came back And if I I will not lose that again, I will kill myself. I mean, I know I'll die if I lose that again I can't can't lose it again. It's too precious. That's what sobriety is for me and I've had terrible times I mean, I've I've had a baby die. I mean, I've had horrible experiences because that's what happens in 38 years You have experiences life happens but everything has been manageable everything and Boy has my life sucked sometimes. Oh, I was going to talk tonight, but I'm not going to because it's just, too <laughs> but it, when I was four, um, anyway, I, I stayed in that state and it was hard by the way, because my husband was not really, my, my, hus- my husband did not stop drinking and he didn't want to stop drinking. So he was ho- really upset that he lost his drinking partner. He so upset that he would, when I come home from whatever I did during the day after, after I re- released from, from this rehab place, I would come home and I'd open the kitchen cabinet, I'd, you know, I come in and I'd open it and there was a line, a mirror with a line of coke and a martini made just the way I liked it every single night. Now back then we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have anything like that. I'd have to put my coat back on because it was February, March. I'd have to put my coat back on, walk out of the building, walk to the corner of 73rd and 2nd, go into a phone booth, remember? Phone booth, you put a dime in, you pick it up, you dial it, and I call my sponsor, and she said the same thing every night. Darling, go back, dump out the drink, wash the glass, clean the mirror, put everything away, eat your dinner, go to bed. And I did it night after night for one year. One year, that's how bad I wanted it. I couldn't even imagine not wanting it. I was ecstatic to be sober. Every fractal, every piece of my life that hadn't worked fit in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was having these experiences. Now I was, you know, doing every guy, but um, you know, (laughs) that's just what I did. Eventually, (laughs) oh God, eventually my husband, um, got sober too. And he, it was incredible. It took, a, it took him losing his job. It usually does for a <laughs> You know, we said in New York, grim mercilessly, women get sober and look for jobs, men get sober and look for mommies. I know, I know, I know, I know. But that's what we said. It's New York, it's New York, okay? But anyway, so it was kind of merciless. But but he it, it, he did lose a huge huge he was the head of, of an ad agency, and he lost his job he was just he was he was a wreck, so we had to change our lives and we did we simplified things became more clear. I knew i couldn't act anymore i I knew i couldn't I was unable to and eventually, eventually, I had this spiritual awakening i'm walking down the i'm walking down the street, and this is like four years after i 'm sober I had a child i'm pushing a pram, and I disappeared. It just it happened again i disappeared into a bliss that is unimaginable now i've always been a big meditator and i was meditating a lot then two hours a day but i became a complete witness to my own life it led me to india to a meditation teacher with my family it just became this gorgeous life and i said to my meditation teacher i want to become a therapist and she laughed which i thought was horrible I was put through sort of a series of spiritual tests and eventually it all worked out and I got an merit scholarship to NYU and I, I became a therapist and over these years I've done all these other trainings. I'm an ordained minister, I've got the raunchiest mouth you've ever heard, you know. I'm, yeah, I know. And, and I've done all these other trainings in, in, in oriental medicine and all these things and I love, I have the best practice because I do exactly what I want. And thank God my sister reported to me so many times because now I'm kind of not afraid of it anymore. Like it's pretty gruesome, but I, I'm radical. I'm not afraid, I'm radical. And I do, and I make a high six figure income after losing everything when I was 14 years sober, everything. People say, oh, I lost all my money. No, you didn't. You, I lost, but I lost all my money, everything. And I was 14 years sober. I went through such a bad time. The husband, the second husband that I loved with all my heart walked out, just walked out. And he took me to court. And for a year and a half, I was my own lawyer. Oh my God, <clears throat> I will tell you that my daughter got a fatal cancer. I lost everything, I lost my home, I lost everything. And something in me did it. Because I wasn't doing meetings very well. I, in fact, I was, I'm shocked that I was sober. In fact, most people, the ch- three children, probably would have done better, and I'm serious and I'm not trying to be funny, would have done better had I had drinks because I was so awful, I was such a shrew. My alcoholism is emotional, horrible behavior, and it came back in spades. It's, in the big book says there will come a time when we're defenseless against the first drink. For me, it was defenseless against this horrible behavior. I was horrible. I w- I just became insane. Now, believe me, he, he, it happened for a lot of reasons, but I was able to go to court three times a week, file my own pleadings, vacuum my own house, walk three dogs, take care of sick children, start a new business, start to make money, everything. And I know that there's a beautiful quote in the Vedas, which is a, a spiritual literature that says, we're not the doer, we're the done i absolutely know because i had this experience that something in me in us carries us and does it for us because i can't i couldn't have done that i mean it was just this power that i mean it's not and you're not aware i wasn't aware of it like oh my god look at this it's so wonderful to be so spiritual and be carried by this power it just kept going on and on i got a terrible disease that was so painful i couldn't put bed sheets on my legs at night it was so painful called reflexive sympathetic dystrophy didn't take any, anything for it. It just kept ha- things kept happening and moving and happening and moving, and then finally, with the recession, I lost. I went bankrupt, and moved to a, a place I just considered I'd never lived, La Crescenta. I'm still there now. It's a wonderful place. I'm so happy. I rent a house. I've never been happier in my life. My life is simple. I make money. I love to hear the birds. I have a greyhound. She's so neurotic. I rescued her from the track, and I have a Persian cat who's the ugliest cat I've ever seen. And I'm happy. I, I'm happy. I'm really, but I, it went through hell. I mean, it was like a lot of years of hell, just devastating hell. I wrote a book about it. The book did well. It's called first kill all the lawyers. <laughs> but but I, I know that we don't have anything to worry about. Just. It just happens. You don't have anything to worry about. It all works out. Life is benevolent. There's a force that keeps carrying us. No matter how much we gripe and grudge and everything, it just keeps moving up. God! Damn! I'd like to say something about the phallic symbol that edibly charged, challenged men. But I won't. Anyway, I I think that's enough. I just um, I love AA. It's it's it is my life. I, I just love it. I I love to practice meditation. I started doing it again recently, really dedicated to it. And I just go so deep. And I think I walk around in a trance. Anyway, I bump into stuff because maybe because I'm old. But um, I just really have to tell you, we are the luckiest people on earth to be here. And if you're not if you're not sober, so what? Just stay here anyway. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't. Welcome to the 29 day wonder. And I gotta tell you, I love, you know, Clint Hodges said, if you like everybody in AA, you haven't been to enough, you're not going to enough
5: meetings.
4: (laughs) I hate everything, everybody's little tendencies and shit, but I love every, I truly love you. I mean, I can say that. And I mean it with a big, broad, open heart. I love you and thank you for having me. All right.
6: less alcoholic let's give Catherine and Greg a hand for a great meeting we like to welcome Carlo back our cooker and we want to thank everybody that's helped us set up and that bring food every week it's really been good and uh, if you want to get involved come see Fernando or I uh, after the meeting we we have some, some spots here that we need help with, and afterwards, if you'd help us all carry everything to the truck, help Fernando. We'd appreciate it. Okay. Where's uh, where's our ticket man?
7: Oh, Tickets. 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 Well, we got some good stuff. We're gonna back Right here. All right. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nick and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, All right. We're going to be raffling off two books today and a God box. Oh. A <laughs> lot of surprises. One of the books that we're raffling is Our Great Responsibility, a selection of Bill Williams uh, General Service Conference talks, and um, another one called I Am Responsible, The Hand of AA. Selected stories from the AA Grapevine okay. and a God Box. You know, so if Les can go and help me out, picking some tickets.
4: Pick those tickets.
7: Okay. First one, <clears throat> ending
5: in one eight three six. One eight three six. three six. All ooh, right. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. There go. Yeah,
1: Catherine said that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which one would you like? Would the bottom
7: one. Yeah, no.
1: black
5: one. Yeah. one. There you go. Okay. Awesome. Really good one. Yay!
7: Right, there we go. Two more. Two more guys. There you go. Okay. Next one, ending in one eight three nine. One eight three nine. All right, there we go. Yeah. 1839, which one would you like? Um, so you got the book or the God Box? I'll take the, book. the book, okay, there you go. Thank you, thank
5: you. Hey, Christine, we did it. All right,
7: this is the God Box, guys, okay? Last one. There we go. And these numbers end in 1788. 1788. From seven eight eight. Anyone? One once Oh, there we go. Nice.
6: A That's a good one. God
4: box is good. <laughs>
6: <laughs> you know how to use it, right? It's a good one. God box please. for you, right? There you go.
5: hi! Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're
7: welcome. You're welcome.
6: And thank you guys for letting me be a service. Oh I I'm less alcoholic. I'm your grapevine rep. Two years, fifty fifty uh, fifty-eight bucks. I got uh, two back this week and uh, the first one I'm gonna give away is, is on acceptance. It's really a good one. What we do is uh, Grapevine is a meeting in a print. Uh, you know, you get I always say you get stuck on stupid and you're in the car and you read one of these little stories and it'll straighten you right up and get you to the next stop line. Oh boy. So, uh, or you could, uh, you <laughs> Jerry said you
4: can't read while you drive. Oh,
6: that's t- really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you can send a subscription to the hospital or penitentiary, or you could give, a, give it to a newcomer. So, here it is, acceptance. I got to take her?
1: Here, I'll take
6: it. David, a All right, Dave. I got a guy in New York that could really use it. New York? Yes, sir. Wow. Okay, I got one more. The grapevine, this beautiful truth. Singing and searching. Can we get it? here's one more? Come get it. Somebody wants her to read it and then bring it back. No takers? All right. All right, Rick. I'll bring it back to you. All right. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for sharing. And with that, uh, Jerry, come on up and read uh, the promises and put us out of here.
1: All right, brother. Love you, you too, brother. My name is Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. Promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down... The scale we have gone, we will see how our experiences can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and our outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We we think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silence for those who still suffer in and out of these rooms, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen.